Take your copy of God's Word with me this morning and open it to Genesis chapter 24. We'll be in the whole of that chapter this morning as we uh, continue on in the life of Abraham this week and just one more week uh, before we uh, before we end this series and uh, uh, and and uh, and then enter into our, our Easter. Uh, well, it'll be Easter Sunday in two weeks, and so very much looking forward to that. Today is uh, today is kind of a special day for me. Uh, today marks uh, five years since the since this church had, has called me to be a part of the pastoral staff here at First West, and uh, so it came on, you know, five years ago as associate pastor, and then um, and then I've had the the honor of, of of leading you as senior pastor over the last uh, year and eight months or so. This is a really significant day for me because it, it demonstrates um, uh, just so much of God's faithfulness in, in my life uh, over the last five years. Um, last night at about 2.15 in the morning when I couldn't sleep, uh, I'd been thinking throughout the week uh, of just the, the significance that this day has. And this is not my sermon, but it is the introduction to my sermon. Um, and uh, and so it'll be a longer introduction than normal. Sorry, just buckle up. Uh, I, I've learned a lot of things over the last uh, five years, but uh, over the past couple of weeks, as I've reflected on what I've learned, I've I've I think I've I've learned at least these five things in five years uh, in full time ministry here at First West. First is that uh, I, I'm not as holy as I thought I would be by now. It's not uncommon, I don't think, to assume that new responsibilities and new circumstances in life will offer new opportunities for a fresh start on holiness. Uh, What I've learned over the last five years is that my sinful nature still finds itself holding on for dear life, trying to reassert itself daily. I've learned in the last five years that the call of Christ to die to self each day, to take up my cross, to follow him is a a call that I can still only obey by the grace that he alone can supply. I'm not as holy as I thought I would be by now, but I'm also not as sinful as I was. I'm still in need of God's grace each day, but each day by his grace, um, I am being sanctified. had a, in a conversation with a church member recently I asked how I could be praying for her. And she said, pray for swift sanctification. That is a terrifyingly brave prayer. I've learned I'm not as holy as I thought I would be by now. I, secondly, I, I learned that I don't know as much as I thought I did. This doesn't mean that I've been wrong about a lot of things, although I have made some mistakes to be sure. Rather, there's just some things that you cannot learn in seminary and some things that you must learn by experience. Pastoral ministry has opened my eyes to how much I still don't know. Um, I've learned how much I don't know. But I've also, third, I've learned that I'm wiser than I think myself to be. <clears throat> I don't mean this as a, a point of gloating, but, but a point to glorify God. Friends, almost weekly, I, I find myself in uh, situations and circumstances that, um, that place me right at the edge uh, and, and often beyond my knowledge and experience. Totally lost as to how to handle 
particular situations and, and, uh, and, and spiritual circumstances in, in some of your lives, even in my own. Countless times I have prayed for wisdom. And every single time that I've prayed that prayer in faith, believing that God would answer, he has. I should probably restate this point, not that I'm wiser than I think myself to be, but that that God has been exceedingly kind to have helped me to be wiser than my years. Fourth, I've learned that I love people more than I thought I would. In five years, I've learned that, that there are very few vocations in life that put a person into such intimate and close relation with others, quite like pastoral ministry. As a pastor, I get to uh, share in the very best and the very worst parts of your lives. I get to laugh and celebrate the faithfulness of God when he shows up in glorious ways in your lives. I get to hold your newborn babies. I get to celebrate the, the salvation of friends and family that you've been praying for. And I get to hold hands and cry and pray quiet prayers, asking for God's mercy and help along with you in times where we have no idea what's going on. In all of that, God has allowed me and enabled me to love you, his people, far more than I thought possible. Fifth and and finally, and this will get us to our text this morning. I've learned that how you truly live will be known by how you die. In five years of full-time pastoral ministry, I've performed one wedding and countless funerals. The truth about a person's life always comes out in their last days and certainly at their funeral. I've enjoyed the very real, visceral privilege of officiating funerals for wonderful saints whose entire lives were centered around Christ and the gospel. Those have been some of my most favorite moments in ministry. Preaching gospel sermons at Zella Boyer's funeral and Gene Walker's funeral and Susan Womble's funeral. Wonderful women who loved the Lord deeply and it just oozed out of every pore of their body. Having the opportunity to glorify God through the lives of those people, even as God took them far sooner than we were ready for. Such a privilege. And I've also buried people whose family swore that they were Christian, but couldn't remember where the deceased had left their Bible or if they even still owned one anymore. I've preached gospel sermons at funerals of people who their loved ones would swear loved the Lord, but where every other story and memory that shared of that person was absent the Lord's presence. In just five years of pastoral ministry, I've learned that our dying says a lot about our living. And that when I die, I want to leave ample evidence and confidence of the faith I say each day that I live by. And that has been some 30 years now transforming me. I want to live and die in and by faith. As we approach in Genesis 24, the end of Abraham's life, as he's preparing to die, he will here in this chapter arrange to have a wife found for his son Isaac. The woman that will 
Mary Isaac is Rebecca, a member of Abraham's extended family and a woman of faith herself. As we look at this text this morning, I want us to see that faith in God who promises great things will never disappoint the believer. So pray to and praise the Lord whom you trust living and dying by faith in him. We ought to, by the example of Abraham and others in this chapter, live and die by faith to ensure that future generations of faith-filled and faithful disciples of Jesus will follow after us. When we begin reading, we're going to look at the whole chapter of Genesis 24 today, but we're going to begin by reading just the first 28 verses. Would you stand with me as we honor God by reading his word? Genesis 24 begins this way. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, To your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor, where he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of, the, at the time of evening, when the, time, when, the, uh, the time when the women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord... God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are, becoming out, are, are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink and who shall say drink and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, drink, my Lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. And when the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half a shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels. And he said, please tell me, daughter, uh, please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. 
The man bowed his head and he worshiped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. May God bless us as we read his word this morning. You may be seated. Living and dying by faith is something that we see illustrated for us very clearly in the passage to us this morning. And I think there are at least five things related to living and dying by faith that are here for us to to learn. Right. Uh, This is toward the end of Abraham's life. And in fact, Abraham's last recorded words in Genesis were there to us in the first few verses of this chapter through verse nine or so. We'll not hear from Abraham again. In Genesis, these are not necessarily his dying words, but they are the last words of Abraham that we have before us. We learn that living and dying by faith uh, requires or or elicits out of us at least these five things. We can live and die by faith first by believing in the Lord's ability. Live and die by faith. Believe in the Lord's ability. Here now at the end of his life, Abraham demonstrates that he has not at all wavered since Genesis fifteen six, where there we read, Abraham believed the Lord, the promises of land, offspring, and blessing that he had given to him. Abraham believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Aware that his life is ending, Abraham is living every moment with full trust in the Lord, knowing that the promises of land and offspring and blessing will rest now no longer with him, but with his son, Isaac. And so here Abraham instructs his servant to find Isaac a wife from Abraham's own people, not from among the Canaanites who worship false gods and, uh, uh, and engage in other worship practices that are not in keeping with how Abraham has come to worship the Lord. Now the servant that Abraham chooses and sends to go find Isaac a wife is somewhat concerned that in going, he may not be able to find such an eligible woman for Isaac. And he expresses those concerns to Abraham. But we must see Abraham's continued trust in God who has promised Abraham so much in his life to this point. Abraham says in verse 7, look at this. The Lord, he says to his servant, the Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me to your offspring, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there. In light of all the questions that the servant has about how God will, uh, how he'll be able to find this eligible bachelorette uh, for, for Abraham's son. Abraham just responds in faith. God will provide. God has promised and he has sworn to me and he'll continue to provide. So friends, how do you live by faith? You live by faith by trusting the Lord's provision all along the way. Here now, some 70 years after God first called him, Abraham has grown in his certainty of what God will do. I trust the Lord to do whatever is necessary to provide here, Abraham says to his servant. The promise that Abraham claims here of offspring and blessing, the promise that God first gave to him in Genesis 12, again, we know are not promises that are directly to us too. God has not promised all of us land, offspring, and, uh, and, and that, we will bl- that all the nations of the world will be blessed through us. But we do know that those promises each have been fulfilled in Jesus, the Son of God, the descendant of Abraham, who brings the blessing of salvation to the nations by his death and resurrection for sinners. So live by faith. 
Trust your life to the Lord Jesus, giving him your total dependence and obedience. Brothers and sisters, a life lived in faith believes in the Lord's ability to do what we cannot. This is no greater application for us today than in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just as Abraham trusted the Lord, trusted that the Lord would provide the right wife for his son Isaac, even though Abraham had no idea who it would be or how she would be found, So also we who are Christians have trusted that while we cannot do anything to close the chasm that our sin has opened between us and God, that Jesus Christ, the sinless son of God, the the descendant of Abraham, has done for us what could not be done on our own. He who knew no sin was made to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Live and die by faith. Believe in the Lord's ability. Have faith in his ability to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Friends, live and die by faith. Seek God's loving help. Seek his loving help, we see secondly. As a servant of Abraham goes back to Haran, to the city of Abraham's brother, Nahor, he knows, the servant knows that what Abraham has asked him to do will be impossible for him to do on his own. He knows that he's not going to find this eligible bachelorette uh, uh, just by accident or by happenstance. And so he seeks the assistance of a loving and faithful God. He prays in verse 12. We read his prayer. Oh, Lord God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. That word steadfast, the word that is translated steadfast love is the Hebrew word chesed. And if you don't spit a little bit when you say it, you're not saying it right. Chesed, steadfast love, faithful love, enduring love, loyal love. This this word that that appears all throughout the Old Testament is, is applied here to God who has shown steadfast love to Abraham. The servant asks that God would bring about a specific, a very specific series of events in answer to his prayer and demonstration of God's chesed, his steadfast love to Abraham. His prayer is, God bring one woman who will offer to give me water and then also water my camels so I don't say anything at all and that will be the woman. Now we should not learn from this servant and from this text to pray for specific signs and events to take place in our lives as, answer, as answers to God's prayer. That's not what we learn from this passage. That's not what this text is teaching. Now, you may pray for specific signs and events. God, do these things in my life in this specific way. You may pray those things. I'm not saying you can't. But I would encourage you not to do so. Uh, because in our current cultural context, that looks a lot like uh, a lot more like superstition than it does faith. I'll know that God's in this if this, 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 and this happen. And if one of those things doesn't happen, God must not be in it. And I'm going to go the other direction, right? This is a very special moment in the life of God's people where all of the promises hinge upon Isaac being able to find a wife. Right? All of the promises hinge upon this, this one marriage, and the servant understands that. Abraham understands that. There's a lot hinging upon this, uh, uh, this, this soon-to-be blind date. Okay? The course of redemption history does not hinge upon the man or woman that you want to date or marry. Okay? So you're not in the same position, any of us, 
uh, as, as Isaac or the servant. So though you may feel like you want to pray for very specific things for God to do in your life, uh, you may, but I would just encourage you not to, not to get all your hopes bound up in God answering specific things because along the way he may say no, or he may not answer in the affirmative, the things that you want him to give. And that may be his way of teaching you that you are praying wrong. The servant prays in faith, not in superstition, but in faith to the loving and faithful God, seeking God's loving help, trusting that he will continue to make good on his promises to Abraham. Live and die by faith. Seek God's loving help. We live by faith, by trusting the Lord. And we live by faith, by seeking his loving help, his care. So we pray for God's assistance. We pray regularly for his perfect provision, even though we may not know what that provision entails. God, I have these needs in my life and I don't know how you'll meet them, but I'm praying and trusting that you will. We pray for wisdom and for foresight to see his hand at work. We pray in faith to a loving God to grant us peace with what he has provided to us, to give us contentment with what we have and to make us generous with what he may give. We pray for God's grace to capture the hearts of those whom we know who have not yet trusted in Christ. We petition God with his own words from 2 Peter 3 verse 9 that he would fulfill his promise of salvation from, uh, of people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, bringing them to repentance and to faith in Christ. So we pray, help us, loving Father, to see your hand at work. God, give us contentment with the things that you have given. Give us patience as we wait on you. Give us open hands to give back to you all that you may ask for. Be faithful to your promise of salvation of the nations. Call our family members to repent of sin and trust in your son, Jesus. God, give us opportunities to speak the truth of the gospel and to invite others to believe on your son. Show your faithful love to us by expanding your kingdom in the hearts of our neighbors and friends. Expanding your kingdom in the hearts of our family who will come to know Christ as Lord through our words and our deeds that are done to your glory. God, have your way in us. Give us your loving help to do all that you've saved us and called us to do. Friends, we live and die by faith, believing in the Lord's ability to do what we cannot. We live and die by faith, uh, seeking his loving help. We live and die by faith, by praising him for his handiwork. By praising him for his handiwork. When living by faith, it is crucial to trust the Lord and to seek by prayer his loving help. But the life of faith is rounded out with worship. That's where the life of faith is always intended to go, is to worship. As God answers prayer or redirects your prayer for for help, it is right and natural to worship him for it. We find in verses 15 through 25 of our chapter today that God answers the prayer of the servant exactly. The servant of Abraham prays for a woman who would come, who would give him water when he asks, and then who would, on her own initiative, water his camels as well. And that happens exactly the way that he's prayed for. Before the man even finishes praying, even as he's saying, Lord, let these things be done, Rebecca shows up on the scene. She interrupts his prayer. 
gives him water, waters his camels, and reveals that she's the daughter of Abraham's nephew, part of his clan. Everything that the man that the servant has been charged with by Abraham and has prayed to God to provide has been divinely laid before him. And what is his response? Worship. Look at verses 26 and 27 again. The man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord. And said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love, his chesed, and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to, my, uh, uh, the, way, uh, to the house of my master's kinsmen. And as the chapter continues, friends, the servant will go with Rebecca and to her brother Laban to their family home where the servant will recount in perfect detail. We'll not, we'll not read all of those verses today. It's a, almost a verbatim retelling of the, the uh, events of verses 15 through 25. But he'll retell the whole family in their house in perfect detail all of the preceding events, including especially his prayer to the Lord and especially including the Lord's timely and precise answer. And of his worship of God. He goes to Laban's house. He says, hey, here's what happened. I prayed to the Lord for these things. Rebecca came, did those things. And then I worshiped God for doing the things that I prayed for him to do. Even this retelling of events is a sort of continued worship of God for his steadfast love and perfect provision. Then see what happens beginning in verse 50. Look with me at verses 50 through 52 in your Bibles. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, This thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you, good or bad. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go. And let her her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. And when Abraham's servant heard these words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. Even those in Laban's house on hearing the story of how all these things came to be, how the servant prayed, how God answered specifically, and how the servant responded in worship. Even the people in Laban's own house, Rebecca's own family, cannot but see the handiwork of God in all that has happened. Even they are brought to exclaim, this thing has come from the Lord. We, we can't say anything about it. It is obvious God is at work. And Rebecca is then at that moment betrothed in, in, uh, in that second to Isaac. And the servant of Abraham bows and worships the Lord again. I love this guy. By this, friends, we learn that a life of faith, a life that that lives and dies by faith, is a life of constant worship. Worship is far more and far deeper than singing songs on Sunday morning or in the car on the way to work. Worship is far more than singing, period. Worship is giving to God all the glory, all of the honor, all of the praise that he deserves for the way that he acts in our life and giving it to him as soon as we notice it. Worship can take the form of singing. Yes, it often does in my shower. That's the only place I'm allowed to sing out loud. But worship also takes the form of prayer, of meditating on God's word. Worship takes the form of writing poetry and prose inspired by God's faithfulness in your life. Worship takes the form of simply sharing the glorious things that God is doing with other people in your life. A life of faith is one that is constantly on the lookout for ways to bring attention to God in our own minds and to the minds and the hearts of others. Live and die by faith. Praise the Lord for his handiwork. Worship the Lord at every turn. Live and die by faith, dear friends. 
Do this by looking to the past. Look to the past. A life of faith is one that is mindful not only of what God is doing in the present moment, but also what he has done in moments before, what he's done in the past. By this point in Abraham's long, long life, at the beginning of chapter 24, he has much to look back on, doesn't he? We've read in verse 1 that the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And in verse 35, the servant of Abraham says to Laban, the Lord, this is Rebekah's brother, the Lord has greatly blessed my master and he has become great. He's given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, even bore a son to my master when she was old. And to him, he has given all that he has. See the faithfulness of God to my master. The past faithfulness of God is not lost on either Abraham or on his servant. They can each look to the past and see the faithfulness, the, the, the constancy, the loyalty of God's love and promise toward Abraham. Continuing to walk in faith in God who keeps his promises. There are a good many people who today would say to you, forget what is behind. Leave the past in the past, just move forward. Or you can't do anything about the past, just forget it and move on. And there's a kind of truth to this. For we who are in Christ, we ought not to look back and to dwell upon our past sins and so depress ourselves and condemn ourselves all over again by revisiting what has been forgiven in Christ. But at the same time, it is good to look to the past to remind ourselves to continue to walk forward in faith. Psalm 105 verse 5 says, Remember the wondrous works that God has done. His miracles and the judgments that he uttered. Christian, it is good to remember the good things that God has done. It is good to look to the past to see the good things God has done. It is good to remind ourselves of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which never grows old, which never changes, is always full of power. That gospel uh, message that God has made a way for the forgiveness of our sins as we trust his son, Jesus, who gave his sinless life for our sins and was raised from the dead to rescue us from our rebellion against God. It is good, Christian, to remind yourself daily of the gospel you have believed, of the Christ that you have trusted and who has saved you. We learn from Abraham and his servant to live and die by faith, by looking to the past to remember the good things that God has done. We find that those who live by faith make it a habit to look to the past and make it a habit to mark the faithfulness of God in their lives. Abraham does it. Abraham's servant does it. And so does the Christian who lives by faith, remembering the blessing of God in Jesus Christ risen from the dead. If you have not looked on your past with joy and, and gratefulness for the faithfulness of God to save you from your sin lately, you are missing out. Look to the past and praise the Lord for what he's done. And finally, live and die by faith, dear Christian. Trust the Lord with the future. Trust the Lord with the future. We've already seen how Abraham and his servant trust the Lord with the future, here with, with events that have not yet unfolded. But let us not overlook our dear friend and sister, Rebecca. After meeting the servant and hearing the story of God's faithful love to Abraham, as he answered this man's prayer, after being betrothed to Isaac, sight unseen, 
Laban and his mother want Rebekah to stay with them several days more. They say, uh, they say you can take Rebekah as, as a wife for Isaac, but let her just stay with us for like 10 days or more. We want to hold on to her for a little bit longer. But the servant, not wanting to linger any longer away from his master, says that he and Rebecca need to go immediately. We got to go back now. My job has been done, and I got to get back to Abraham. And so Laban and his mother ask Rebecca what she wants to do. And she simply says, I will go. I will go. Friends, don't miss the significance of these three words uttered by Rebecca I will go. Just like Abraham so many years ago, she will be going to a foreign land sight unseen. Rebecca will go to a place without the security of family to live among a foreign people. Rebecca will marry a man that she has never met. She is literally leaving everything behind to begin a whole new life. But she does this by faith. Trusting the Lord who has orchestrated all of these events with a future that she cannot see. I don't know where this is going, but I know that the Lord is in it, so I will go. Her future is undeniably good. The way that the Lord causes things to work out in her life is undeniably good. Look with me at verses 62 through 67. We'll begin in verse 61. And Rebecca and her young women, women arose and rode on the camels with the servant and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. And now Isaac had returned from uh, Be'er Laharoi and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted his eyes up and he saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. The picture painted for us here in these final verses of chapter 24 is uh, is a wonderful one. It's a picture of love at first sight. Right? We, the readers, we know what's going to happen. We know how this is all unfolding, but we get to see it kind of through the eyes of Isaac and Rebecca. You know, the scene shifts and Isaac toward the end of the day is going out to the field to pray and to meditate. And as he's, you know, getting comfortable or whatever it is, he lifts up his eyes and just out on the horizon, he sees some camels moving and we can almost see the wheels turning in his head. What? What's going on over there? You know? And then the scene shifts to Rebecca's point of view and she looks up and she sees a man walking out in the field and she says to the servant, who's that guy? I might like to get to know him. The servant says, that's my master. And she hops off that camel, covers her face up and she and Isaac meet and they're eventually married. We read that Isaac loves Rebecca. This is more, though, than just a, a picture of love at first sight, of physical love. It's a picture of God's ability to work all situations for the good of those who love and trust him. Yeah. Rebecca is as much a hero of, of faith as Abraham in these verses. And we're meant to see that. We're meant to see that Rebecca is a woman of faith. And so we learn finally that those who live and die by faith trust their future to the Lord. Knowing his purposes and his plans are always, always, always for his glory and for their good. 
Hear how Paul encourages the church in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39 to trust the Lord this way. Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us, says Paul? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, he says in verse 37, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In trusting the Lord with the future, Abraham, his servant, and Rebecca, and Isaac, all ensure that, that in trusting the Lord with the future, following where he goes, that a new generation of God's promise and blessing will come about. Knowing that even before Christ is on the scene, thousands of years before Christ is on the scene, knowing that there is no more secure place to be in all the world than in the hands of God who shows his steadfast love to those who love and believe in him. These people, Abraham, the servant, Isaac, Rebekah, ensure that the promise of God will continue for generations to come. Friends, this is the same reward waiting for Christians who live and who die by faith in Jesus Christ. To see faithful generations come up after us. As we trust God with the future, knowing that his plans are always for his purposes and always for his glory and the good of those who love him. As we trust the Lord with the future, we reap the benefit. We reap the promise of seeing future generations of faith come behind us. Often I've heard bloggers and pollsters and Christian leaders lament the tragedy that is the absence of young people in the church. A good many churches have attempted Myriad solutions to this problem. How do we keep young people in church? We'll, do, we'll build a new building. That'll do it. We'll, we'll have really trendy programs. We'll do everything that attracts young people, that, that just speaks to them. We're going to do it all, and, and we're going to get them all here. We're going to do everything iPhone. We're going to have high-tech worship experiences. We're going to dress in flannel shirts and skinny jeans with big beards and dark rim glasses. I'm only ticking two of those boxes. We're going to do whatever we can to, to uh, attract young people to us. May I suggest a remedy that is less often heard? Keep, in order to keep young people, uh, our children and our grandchildren, connected to the church and to keep them in church beyond their high school years. And as they move into college, may I suggest a different remedy that is not dependent upon external things and spending money. Those of us who are grandparents and want to see our grandchildren, not leaving the church, but thriving in their relationship with Christ. We who are parents and and long to see our children live with confidence in Jesus. I'm part of that group. For all, for all who, who want to hand the torch of faith at the end of our lives to a new generation to run the race, 
May I suggest that what we need to do most to ensure that our faith does not die with us, but lives on in our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, what we really need to do is not to build new buildings and have trendy programs and wear the most trendy of clothing. But what we really need to do is to live and die by faith. I do not think that many students who graduate high school and leave the church after attending college are leaving the church because they're convinced by arguments of atheists and religious liberals. I don't think that's the real reason they leave the church. But that they've not, it's not because they've been, been persuaded by, by good arguments from non-believers. But I think they leave the church because they've been dissuaded by the fact that they've not seen what a robust life of faith in Jesus looks like in the church. Their faith often has been a superficial and circumstantial belief in some stories about Jesus but not a vigorous and vibrant confidence in the risen Lord. High school and college students, hear me this morning. It is of great value to have a ready defense for your faith in the face of opposition that you will face at college and in a culture that is rapidly running away from God. It, is, it will be of help to you to know how to defend your faith uh, in the face of the challenges that the world and, uh, and the places that we go in this world will, will face or, or will put against our challenges. But what you need most in your life are not answers to hard questions. What you need most in life are visible examples of the transformative faith of Christ to learn from. What you need are older people who have gone on, who have lived, and who are trying to die by faith to learn from. Your faith will grow stronger, I promise you, as you spend time in the trenches of life and faith with those who have been there before and who can point you to Christ all the more along the way. You can know all the answers and still not know Christ. So find someone older than you in the faith to follow, to, to follow Jesus with, to help you in those hard times of life. Students, look to those who have gone before. And ask if you can follow them in the trenches. Brothers and sisters, if we are to see a generation of young people rise to take the mantle of our ministry. And to run with it to the glory of God. We must live and die full lives of total faith in Christ. So you who are not students, you who are older. You who are senior citizens in your twilight years. Live and die by faith. Ensure that a new generation is ready to take the mantle of gospel ministry on the west side of Albuquerque after you are dead and gone. Don't let your faith, don't let your life with Christ die with you. Show the next generation you really believe that Christ has done for you what you cannot. Show the next generation that you really trust the Lord's ability to save through faith in Jesus. Older brothers and sisters, teach our children to pray. Show them what it looks like to depend on God's loving care. Friends, demonstrate what a life of constant worship looks like. It's not just a Sunday morning exercise. But it's a 24 hour a day, 7 day a week, 365 day a year, as many years as the Lord gives me Effort and exercise. Demonstrate what a life of constant worship looks like and take time 
Go out of your way to point out the glory of God when it isn't always obvious to young minds. Teach our children how to behold the Lord. Take pains to remind yourself of the faithfulness of God. And instruct your grandchildren to remember what God has done for them. Don't be content with pithy statements like, God's been good to us, God's blessed us. Give them robust stories of how God has been faithful. God has been good, children. Ellie June, God has been so good to me. Honey, he has saved me from my sin. God sent his son, Jesus. Baby, look at me. God sent his son, Jesus, who did not sin, to die on the cross for me to be raised from the dead. Jesus has saved me. I believe in him. I trust him. Baby, God has been so faithful to me. I sin every day, but God is faithful still. There's a beautiful song we sing, honey. It says, a song that we sing that goes, our sin is so great, but God's mercy is more. God loves you, baby. God loves me and he has loved you. He sent his son, Jesus, to love you. He died for you. He rose from the dead. Maybe God is so good. Life will be hard sometimes. Life will be hard sometimes. I'm not crying because I'm sad. I'm crying because I'm happy and I love you. And baby, I want to share with you how good God has been. I want you to know God, God wants to be just as good and just as faithful to you. He loves you so much. And that's the best thing I can ever teach you in life. I love you. Dear friends, take time to tell your children and your grandchildren how God has been faithful. Not just that he has, but how he has. Revisit the gospel with the grandchildren as they run noisily throughout your house on Sunday afternoons. Share with them the hope of knowing Christ. Listen, our children will not grow to love the Lord if they, if they just have some kind of superficial, circumstantial experience of church things. They will learn to love the Lord as they watch you love the Lord and as you teach them how to love the Lord. So take pains to remind yourself of God's faithfulness to you in the gospel and to instruct your grandchildren to remember, your children to remember what God has done for you and for them in Christ. And then finally, friends, do all of this. Do all of this trusting that as you live and die by faith, that the Lord will take your blessed, gospel-filled, Christ-centered, faithful life and use it to compel those that you have discipled in Christ to do the same with the generation after them. We don't need fancy tricks. We don't need expensive lights. We don't need fog machines or lasers or all of the perfect rebuttals to atheist arguments against God to see a future generation come behind us in faith. What we need is to live robust lives of faith. To die leaving ample evidence and confidence of our faith in Christ and the ability of the gospel to transform our lives. Brothers and sisters, let us live and die by faith that we may show the faithfulness of God to those who are coming behind us. Let me pray for you.